It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawley story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. This week, we cover Fred Tokars. Nearly 30 years ago, Fred Tokars, a former prosecutor, part-time judge, and prominent criminal defense attorney, arranged for the murder of his wife, Sarah. So, as always, for those of you not as familiar with this case, I like to give a rough overview and timeline of events. I know, for those of you listening who are from Atlanta, Georgia, who were here in the 90s, the early 90s, this particular case gripped the attention of anyone in the city for months. So, I'm sure you're familiar, but just in case, I'll go over... Again, just a rough timeline. So November 29th, 1992, Sarah Tokars was kidnapped along with her young sons from their home in Marietta, Georgia. They were returning from a family Thanksgiving trip to Florida. Fred was not with them. Sarah and Fred were going through some marital problems. We'll delve into all of that, though, and unpack the twists and the turns of this very bizarre case. So Sarah was forced to drive to a secluded area where one of their kidnappers, later identified as a man named Curtis Rower, shot and killed her in front of her sons, Ricky, who was just six years old at the time, and Mike, who was just four years old at the time. It was maybe about three weeks after the shooting, police arrested Curtis Rower, the gunman, and another man, Eddie Charles Lawrence. We'll get into exactly how they both got involved and how they knew Sarah's husband, Fred Tokars. Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rower were eventually indicted on murder charges in the death of Sarah Tokars in December 1992, so just a month after her shooting. They, of course, went to trial. Lawrence pleaded guilty to federal charges of counterfeiting and aiding and abetting the murder, as well as state charges of murder, He received what was described to me by the person I I interviewed about this case, which we'll get into in a minute, the deal of the century, and agreed to, I guess, serve roughly 12, 13 years in a federal witness protection program. Later in his life, tried to appeal those charges, and the judge said no and sentenced him to life in prison without parole. So he's currently serving out that sentence. Curtis Rower was sentenced to consecutive life terms plus 40 years for kidnapping and armed robbery. Back to the man behind this all. Fred Tokars was later charged with murder for ordering the hit on his wife. He went through two trials uh, spanned from about 1994 to 1997. Again, he was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison without parole. And a lot 
comes out about him. I mentioned before his relationship with Sarah. She had hired a private investigator before her shooting, uh, found things out about Fred's business dealings. So many twists and turns that I cannot wait to get into. Just of note, Fred Tokars died in prison in May 2020, just about two years ago. He was 67 and reportedly he'd spent a decade in a wheelchair due to a neurological disease. So enter Bill Torpy, who covered this investigation from the very beginning. We're talking he was there in the driveway of Fred and Sarah's Marietta home the day after her shooting, watching Fred, he said, who looked overcome with grief at the time, to Fred's arrest. He got to know several key players in the case, including Fred and Sarah's sons, Ricky and Mike. We'll get into this. Uh, Mike did recently pass away just before Fred did around the same time. It was a tragic ending that capped off this saga. Bill Torpy writes for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He joined the newspaper in 1990. He writes the Metro column. He's covered politics, government, countless stories about the police courts, the justice system. You'll hear more from him, though, on his very esteemed career. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Torpy on Fred Tokars. First, I was just going to ask you, tell us a little about yourself and your career as a journalist so far. I'm uh, Bill Torpy. Uh, I'm a Metro columnist now. I've been at the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, for 32 years, came in 1990 from Chicago, worked at a paper there, uh, came to Atlanta in 1990, thinking I'd do three, four years here. And they came, the Olympics then was announced. And I thought, well, I got to stick around for that. And, you know, here we are 32 years later, I'm still at the paper. <laughs> so your coverage, we talked about this for this particular case, Fred Tokars, to begin we're talking November 29th, 1992. Sarah Tokars was kidnapped along with her sons from their home in Marietta, Georgia. She was forced to drive to a secluded area. And that was where one of her kidnappers, which later identified as Curtis Rower, shot and killed her in front of her sons who were just six and four at the time. What was it like as you started to cover this? I mean, first of all, when did your coverage begin and what were some of the first moments that stood out to you? Did they have suspects early on? And, and what was it like getting there? I know you said you got there the day after November right. 30th. Well, yeah, it was actually it was actually I was a kind of the accidental reporter on that because our regular Cobb County uh, reporter was taking the week off. I got a call on Monday morning to say to get out there, uh, that there had been this weird, horrible killing. Uh, she had come home uh, without her husband. They were down, they were vacationing over uh, the uh, Thanksgiving holidays, and they were coming home to their cab home, got home late. Sarah Tokars and her two sons, Ricky, who was six, and Michael, who was four. And Fred uh, had some other business, so he didn't go with them, her husband. As she was coming into the house, there was a man with a sawed-off shotgun. Uh, her boys, uh, one of her sons, had told police that it looked like a pirate gun. Uh, so it was like kind of one of those old blunderbusses that pirates would have. He ordered her, it was only one person there at the time, into the, back into her car. 
she drove not too far and it was kind of a secluded area is where they were going to be building some houses and told her to pull over. Another car showed up and uh, there was a struggle apparently and he shot her in the back of the head, killed her uh, immediately. The two sons uh, were obviously aware of this because you know, one of them was awake, one was sort of awake. The police said one of them wasn't awake, but years later, Michael, the younger one, told me, yes, he was awake. They then, this is kind of the haunting vision that came to me, is they, having their mom killed, the, the older one turned off the car because it was still running. So he got the keys and turned the car off. And then they went across this field, a dark field, because it was around midnight, and uh, they were going to a house that had lights on. And so then they showed up at the house that had lights on and, and uh, rang the bell. And, you know, that's how the police found out about it. Oh, my gosh. I, it gives me chills. Even just hearing you say that they told police it looked like a pirate's gun because they were so young. That's that yeah. was their reference. That was their point of reference at the time. Yeah, so he you turned off the car and, and Ricky told police he turned off the car because his grandfather had told him to, you know, always turn off a car. Don't let a car run. So oh. he was, yeah, they, they were very young. So the kidnappers that we mentioned, they'd obviously left the scene and three weeks after the shooting, Police arrested. It was Curtis Rower, who was 22, and we mentioned earlier. And then it was Eddie Charles Lawrence, who was 28. Right. Yeah. And this kind of unfolded uh, over the course of, you know, the this was, a you know, a huge story. As I was saying, the first morning that I got up there, I drove to their house, the house in East Cobb in the suburb of Cobb County. And this just kind of your, you know, typical, uh, you know, nice middle upper middle class uh, house with a big garage in the front. And Fred Tokars was in the driveway kind of sobbing, being hugged by Leah Sears Collins, who was a, a state Supreme Court judge. And she was historic in the fact that she was a uh, the first African-American woman appointed to the state Supreme Court. And she's there hugging him because he was a lawyer. He was a part-time judge. He had been a prosecutor. And he had also kind of been a sort of a player in politics. He had been giving you know, money to different judges and giving campaign contributions, obviously, le- legal campaign contributions to many you know, people. And so you know, this, he, he was kind of inserting himself into being sort of a player in, in his mind in the legal field as well as you know, the political realm. And so we started kind of pulling threads on that. The thought, you know, what in the world has happened here? First thought was it was a botched burglary. Then it kind of didn't seem like that because there was really nothing taken that it seemed. And then, you know, I remember a day or two later, we were hearing from lawyers who were buying guns because they were all afraid that this was some sort of weird revenge killing that uh, a angry client of, of a lawyer came back to, you know, kind of a Cape Fear type of a thing almost. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of going. And, and so then, you know, it's just the, the thing kept unraveling, uh, uh, unspooling. I, I see here, I look through my stories and there was one that myself and another reporter did on the 5th of uh, December of 92, which which would have been like less than a week later that she had hired, there was marital problems and she had hired mm. a private eye. 
And uh, then a few days later, you know, there was a story we did that he had ties to a drug dealer through a tangled web of corporations. And so these things just kept on coming. And it was, it was just just a gradual day by day. It was a very intense uh, media. I, I guess you just go uh, shit show. Basically, it was it was every day somebody had something. And I remember I would turn on the, the channel five, then channel 11, then channel two and see what they had, you know, at six o'clock. And, and I was always worried because somebody was always breaking something and, and you always felt like you were chasing something else. And, and uh, you know, there's all sorts of tips coming in. Uh, a lot of them were, you know, balderdash, but it was, it was a very, strange and competitive media-wise time. And at the same time, it was just this horrible tragedy that had happened. You felt horrible for the family. I remember going to the funeral, and I can't remember the church. It was a big Catholic church up in Cobb County. It was packed with people. I remember Fred was walking down the aisle, just uh, couldn't hardly walk. He, he was just twitching and crying and, and being held up by two people. And I remember looking at him and I'm thinking, well, oh, this guy couldn't have done it, you know, because he was just so racked with emotion. He just looked like a broken man. And I guess looking back on it, it was a, a very good performance uh, on his part. You know, it was it was the biggest story, not only that year, but, you know, I'd say, you know, among many years in, in, in Atlanta. Just like you said, so many twists and turns, too, because you see Fred Tokars, Sarah's husband, who seems overcome with grief. And then all this comes out about him and their marriage. And did I mean, once they'd arrested Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence, what what came out then about how they were related to or knew Fred Tokars? Well, there was a little bit of inkling because a, a few days before he was arrested. So he was arrested getting near Christmas, I think, maybe the 20th or something like that of December. This is Eddie Lawrence. And a few days before that, he had been arrested and then it kind of trickled out that he was arrested in conjunction with something of the of the murder of the investigation. He was a kind of a small time businessman. I think he did like home remodeling and he also owed Fred a bunch of money. And then they also had business connections with a couple of businesses. And it was just really weird that, you know, why Fred Tokars, a lawyer who had advertised on TV, he was one of those guys, you know, back then. He had been a you know a part-time judge, and what in the world is he doing with a um, a small-time you know semi-con man and doing business with him? So that that was kind of a weird thing. And then a couple a few days after that, then Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rower were arrested for the the murder, and then it started kind of getting really weird. Then a few days later, we did a story, uh, myself and Mark Curridan, who was working with me at the time, and it was uh, uh, wife killed after uncovering illegal activities. That's what we gotten that from sources. So it's, that was kind of, that was what, you know, they went with after that. And that's what they convicted him on, Fred Tokars. Uh, this was long before he was arrested himself. He wasn't arrested for another six months or something like that. 
you know, then the, the family, you know, the Ambrusco family, she was uh, Sarah Tokars was Sarah Ambrusco Tokars. Oh, okay. Her dad was a lawyer, kind of a well thought of uh, a lawyer. I think he was a public health official in central Florida. I think they lived in Bradenton, Florida. Anyways, the, the, there was five sisters, the, the Ambrusco family sisters, and they were all up here and all asking for answers, of course, got to know them and they started being suspicious. And I think they might have been suspicious fairly early on, but they really, really got suspicious once Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rowe were arrested. So Eddie Lawrence eventually admitted to taking cash from Fred Tokars to kill his wife. And then Curtis Rower, I guess his sister worked for Eddie Lawrence, also eventually admitted accepting, I think, some $5,000 from Lawrence. Yeah, to help. Kurt, yeah Curtis was uh, a going to be the gunman. So I, I think he was, you know, Fred, the theory that they put out and, and convicted him on was that Fred went to Eddie saying, hey, you know anybody? And then Eddie went and got Curtis. Curtis wasn't a very good criminal, I don't think. He was, you know, he was not the right guy to have gotten in this. He was a crack addict. He then uh, was uh, one of the weak links in that uh, chain of their crime. So he killed her. You know, he then freely admitted about a month later, I interviewed him in, in the Cobb County jail. And he had all admitted the whole thing to me. Of course, he said it was a, an accident that uh, he was pointing the gun at it. And then Eddie Lawrence came to the car. He had a different car and they met at that field where she was killed. And he claimed that, that Eddie Lawrence came up to the car and they were, you know, they were arguing and that's where the struggle was and, and killed her. So I don't think the police bought that. I think that, you know, the, the plan was to kill her and that's, you know, whether he hesitated to do it or not, and he was urged to do it. Um, that is still something that is really not known. Well, like you said, it seemed like by, you know, December, 1992, Eddie and Curtis were indicted. They went to trial, charged, all of that. Then Fred. So describe him a little more. What came out? You've, you've already touched on, you know, a lot of what came out about him. And you mentioned to me when we were discussing this earlier that Fred Tokars early on gave a pretty bizarre press conference, you said. Right. And this was probably still in December. I think this is around when things started looking towards him a bit, especially I think this was after Eddie Lawrence came into the picture. I don't know if Eddie had been arrested or not yet, but he gave a press conference and there was, you know, a ton of media there as, as you could, because it was a huge story. And he then read a uh, statement. So it wasn't just a just top of the mind type of thing. He was reading a statement and he talked about, you know, I had nothing to do with this. I, you know, but he mentioned, uh, this has just devastated my lifestyle. I uh, missed my lifestyle. And, and he mentioned lifestyle more than, I remember going over it afterwards. He mentioned lifestyle more than wife in, in this. You know? So it was, uh, it was a very strange and you know, somewhat damning press conference. Uh, and previous to that, even, we had gotten a word that Fred had a, an apartment in some kind of little crappy little apartment on Roswell Road, just a little bit north of the city. Anyways, we wrote a story, you know, that Fred had this apartment and we knew that there was marital problems and the private eye and all that. So I remember I did the story 
saying that there was this apartment. The next morning, my partner at the paper, uh, Mark Curden, was in a hotel in New York. And I think he was hungover. And <laughs> he got a call and they said, uh, hi, this is uh, Fred Tokars. Curden's like, yeah, yeah, Torpy, come on. I mean, he thought, right. he thought it was me <laughs> messing with him, you know. And he goes, no, this is really, you know. Uh, Fred had reached out to a lawyer, I think, who asked, you know, how can I get my word into the paper? So we did a follow-up story saying Fred Tokar steps forward to say, no, this was not a love shack. You know, I work late at night sometimes and I don't want to drive all the way back to Cobb. Although driving to this place was almost driving all the way back to Cobb. So, but it was, you know, it was just all these weird little twists and turns, as you said earlier, along the, along the road in this story. That's so bizarre. It's, I have this running theory too. It's just my own observation. I tend to almost immediately when someone tries to get ahead of the narrative with the media, I just think it always makes them look so guilty. I don't know why. I don't know if it's, you know, I'd love to see the stats, but I just feel like it always to me, I immediately go, oh, he's the one who did it yeah. in my mind. <laughs> if, they're, if they're leading the search party, then, you know, yeah. yeah. Did you um, get that vibe from him? Did he seem or, I mean, what well, did you, know, you I mean, think? It, if there's a murder, the first thing that you do is look at the spouse, right? That's right. kind of, you know, what the police always, you know, you look at the people closest to him. Kind of immediately, as I said, you know, having seen him that morning, you know, in his driveway, and then, you know, a few days later at the church, I thought, man, this guy's torn up. This, you know, he couldn't have done it. And then it's just started, what happened here? It was some sort of weird, unknown thing that has happened, that has occurred here. And then as all this other evidence uh, has unrolled later on, you know, then it started coming back towards him, you know, fairly quickly too. I mean, we're talking in the course of a couple of weeks, you know, then he became the the prime suspect. And then he kind of really went into, in essence, kind of like hide, you know, I wouldn't say hiding, but it's certainly hiding in sight after the new year, you know, after he really just uh, was laying low. I mean, you know, we were still writing stories about it, but by the end of January, it sort of things started slowing down as far as what we were able to tell. Interestingly, back then, I think uh, police and, and uh, district attorneys and all the like were a little bit more chatty than they are today. I do kind of miss that as a reporter. <laughs> but there was all sorts of uh, chatter because, I mean, I, in fact, I, I jotted down a statement that Dr. Ambrusco wrote. It was a story on Christmas. So oddly enough, I wrote 45 stories in 40 days for the paper, including Christmas and New Year's. Dr. Ambrusco, the father-in-law, said the the media had a great deal to do with this, meaning the arrests. They had a great deal to do with this because they kept stirring things up. I almost wonder if police were maybe feeding information out there, trying to get Fred to screw up somehow or or, trying to shake things loose. Things were certainly shaking loose left and right because there was just kind of so much there. Uh, Fred had connections to a, uh, a drug ring in Detroit, and one of the guys, Julius Klein, he was like a, almost like a mob don. Uh, he was a drug guy. He was murdered, 
And he was also uh, tied to some of the nightclubs that Fred had done work for. And it was just all this, all this stuff started, you know, just coming out. Shady guy. I mean, surprisingly so. That's just so bizarre. So also sidebar, you'd mentioned, too, if we're talking about the police and media, that there were book and, and movie deals that were floating around? Oh, yeah, it was it was um, I, I remember being approached by people, movie producers and agents. And it, sound, it sounded interesting, but, you know, I was kind of had my day job to do. And I, so I you know, really kind of didn't dig too deeply into that. I remember, though, that the Channel 11's reporter was fired because then he had uh, lined up a contract for a potential movie with Fred's former business partner, a legal partner, and also a private eye that was hired by Sarah Tokar. So the three of them had lined up and done a proposal for a movie. And then later on, two Cobb County detectives who were handling the case, who were the lead detectives, had signed a, a movie contract for a potential movie. They got fired. The defense tried to use that uh, ultimately in, in trial as a, you know, that they were you know trying to cook the, the story, you know, to, to, you know, juice it up. The, the judge didn't really hear it. The, the guys got in trouble, although they, they continued their careers and, you know, they were, they were good. They were good detectives. They just made us, uh, I think their chief said they just made a real stupid move. <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, it writes itself like a movie. This seemingly, you know, unassuming guy, Fred Tokars, who you said in one of your stories, you said it sort of exposed this ugly underbelly, his relationship with lawyers and politicians and nightclubs and drug rings and just not what anybody expected. And then so Eddie Lawrence, I guess he went into federal witness protection. Rower was sentenced to consecutive life sentences. And then finally, not finally, it happened pretty quickly. It feels like compared to some other cases I've covered, August of 1993, Fred Tokars is indicted. Mm -hmm. That's when it's sort of, I mean, not unravel, it's already unraveling, but he's eventually, you know, goes to trial. And once that happened, what would you say was sort of the court of public opinion of him during the trial? And what were some of the standout moments throughout his trial? See, there was two different trials and it was kind of like the Arbery case. In essence, there was the, the murder trial, the state murder trial, because, you know, he was charged with having her murdered. And then he was also tried in federal court. And it was kind of a RICO case. And the feds kind of stole Cobb County DA Tom Sharon's thunder by grabbing the case and they tried the federal case first. So it wasn't in essence a murder trial, but murder played prominently into the uh, RICO, which is the basically a conspiracy to deal drugs and commit murder. And so that was the first case that was in Birmingham, Alabama in 1994. So that was a fairly lengthy trial too, because it not only was Fred, but then they had they then brought out uh, he was tried with a, a a nightclub owner who was also a a drug uh, dealer and all sorts of crazy stuff came out in that. In fact, that there was uh, the nightclub owner uh, slash drug dealer that was also tied to Fred and was being tried with him had captured 
this guy who was also involved in the business, who was also a, an Atlanta police recruit. And they thought he, they, he was flipping on him and also stealing some money. So they had him duct taped and naked. And the guy thought he was going to be murdered. And he jumped out a window, glass window that, you know, that came up in that case. Uh, although oddly oh enough, we, we had written, we had written about that before. Cause all, it was weird. All of this stuff just kept popping up. So that came out, Fred was convicted and uh, he got a life, federal uh, life without parole, which is, you know, I mean, he was going to die in prison. Then uh, that was 1994. They didn't try to, to get the death penalty in that one. Then the Cobb then tried the case, but that was forgotten. It was all the way in 1997. And they had to go up to Lafayette, North Georgia, because of uh, pretrial publicity, because in Atlanta, everyone knew about it. So they went up to the North Georgia mountains and tried him in a, the state murder case. And uh, the only reason they were trying to do that, because they wanted to get the death penalty for him. And they didn't. They got a, a holdout juror who I think there might have even been more than one. But anyway, they did not get the death penalty. Uh, similarly, uh, when they tried Curtis Rower, the man who shot her, uh, he was tried in East Georgia. You know, they moved out of Atlanta. And this was maybe 94 or something. And the jury was uh, uh, 11 to 1 on the murder. So one of the jurors held out on the murder because he didn't, he didn't want to get him the death penalty. Anyway, then they, they finally convicted him and uh, he, he was sentenced to life. He's still in prison. Eddie Lawrence, though, and once again, another odd twist, Eddie Lawrence cut a deal with the feds to get like 12 years, yeah, which was amazing. You know, here, here is, he was like the middleman in the murder. They were all charged with murder because even though one guy pulled the trigger, you know, Fred concocted the idea. He got uh, Eddie Lawrence to do it and, it, and then Eddie got Curtis. Uh, so they're all equally uh, liable for the murder and they're all charged with it. Eddie, though, was the middleman and he could get the feds and, and the local authorities tow cars and rower. So they cut him a deal, gave him 12 years. It was the deal of the century. I remember his lawyer was like, you know, very, very happy. And the dumbass that he is, later on, he tried to get that overturned. And then they said, oh, OK, the, the heck with you. Then they gave him life. <laughs> He's still in prison. Oh, so. OK, because I'd read he. Yeah, he cut this deal in to go into federal witness protection. Right. So he had it made. Yeah. That's wow. I did and not he know that. He would have been out in like 2005. You know, he, he would have been out, you know, for 20 years now almost. And he's still in. Wow. Okay. So like you said, they were all found liable. None received the death penalty, but, and then, and then you pointed out too the, the saga with Fred Tokars and his two trials. I mean, it was 1997 before that was really all over and done with. He's convicted of murder in his wife's death. He's sentenced to life without parole. What became of him in prison? Later on, I, I did a story on, you know, what, where are they all are. I don't, and I always wanted to talk to the boys because they, you know, obviously were there and it was just such a traumatic thing. Obviously being as young as they were, I never tried to talk to them. You know, I talked to the family, the aunts largely, 
And uh, so I reached out to the, to the two boys. Ricky had become a um, paramedic. He uh, moved to um, California. And uh, he was a surfer, good surfer. You know, they were both just good looking young guys, good athletes. And uh, Michael, the younger one, who was four at the time, now he was 24. He wanted to become a writer. And he kind of saw himself as kind of like kind of the old school writer, you know, the cigarette dangling from his from his lips as he you know, banged away at the keyboard. <laughs> so I got back and forth with him and he was going to talk. To me and then I go tell you what you want to be a writer why don't you write something for us I, I said you know give me a, a thousand words you know we, we worked with him and he, and he published a, a piece for us so what happened to Fred well Fred had gone into prison and he had skills as a lawyer so the prisoners uh, you know because prison is filled with innocent men right and and they all they all are trying their appeals and, and uh, you know, a lot of pro se, you know, meaning they're doing it themselves. And he then, uh, there was uh, in uh, 2004, there was a, a guy named uh, Dustin Lee Honkin. And he was a chemist who um, kind of a bespeckled fellow who uh, went into the methamphetamine world and did really well in it. And uh, anyway, then it was kind of falling apart for him. And uh, there was a couple guys that he thought were um, turning on him. He had them killed. One of them, though, when they went to the house to kill the person, his girlfriend and her two young daughters were there. And so they, they killed them all. And Dustin Lee Honkin told uh, Fred Tokars uh, they were rats being raised by rats. So, I mean, it was, this is just a bad, bad guy. Anyways, Fred got him talking. And, uh, and in, fact, in fact, I've read where this guy was like one of the bases for the uh, character in Breaking Bad, too. Which that um, is one of my favorite shows of all time, just on yeah, a side yeah. note. So when you yeah. said this, I... Yeah, that's crazy. Great, yeah. So Fred got him talking because he's a lawyer. And so he's so these guys, you know, in, in prison would talk to him thinking that, you know, he might help them with their appeals. And and at the same time, you know, Fred, Fred, there's no uh, client immunity when you're when you're not a real lawyer anymore. You know, and so Fred then turned evidence against him. And uh, Honkin um, ended up being convicted and he ultimately was put to death. The other guy, there was another guy, uh, Robert Ortloff in um, Arizona. He, he mailed someone a bomb, but he's also thought to have been involved with the murder of, of a woman a long time ago in the 80s. And he got to talking to Fred. Next thing you know, he's convicted, too. So and and the uh, district attorney at the time, or one of the prosecutors that uh, who was who prosecuted that case, told me that Fred was critical to the prosecution. It wouldn't have happened without him. So there's some thought that, you know, Fred was trying to rewrite the last chapter of his life, and there's also a lot of thought that you know he was just using the system whatever he could to get what he could out of it. So he ended up getting his own cell. Uh, a TV. He then was, he was in, you know, in the bowels of some prison. They said to be in Memphis, they thought, but you could never find him on any of the, uh, you know, usually you can look up a prisoner and see where they are, but he, he was off the grid. And uh, he also had some sort of 
melody, kind of like Parkinson's. It wasn't Parkinson's, but it was a withering type of thing. And, and at some point he couldn't walk. And uh, he had read it was a neurological disease or something like yeah, that. He ended up uh, dying a couple of years ago. Right. When he's 67. That's so crazy. He's turning people in prison. And that's just, I mean. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember when I wrote that story, the family they were angry about that, saying that that I was somehow, you know, bringing out the good in him, or I was making him a less terrible person. And you know, I just said, you know, I just wrote I wrote a story that this bad man who did a bad thing helped solve these two murders, uh, including one was was the horrific murder of you know of a family, and uh, you know whether he did it to try to you know, do something good. Or he did it just to, to game the system and get his own cell and cable TV, you know, or maybe both. I don't, I don't know. You know, right. we never talked to him, obviously. And so you mentioned the the family too, Sarah's family in particular. You got close with. She had five sisters. Five sisters, yeah. Did they? I'm sure take the boys under their wing after all this happened. Right. They uh, they moved. Uh, Joni, who lived here in, uh, she was the youngest. And she lived here in Atlanta. They moved back, uh, moved back to Florida and raised them. Um, you know, they were with the grandparents for a while. The grandparents were obviously old and they, they later passed away. Uh, but they raised them. The, the boys were raised in Florida and they were, you know, kind of they tried to, to make them as normal as possible. You know, they're on Little League, you know, all the things. Uh, Michael became a pretty good musician. You know, in fact, he played in a kind of a punk thrash punk band, I think it was. The family really did well by the kids because, you know, obviously they were a close, uh, strong family and, and they, you know, wanted to forge a, a positive outcome for, you know, these two two boys who witnessed such, a, some, you know, something as horrible as you can imagine that could happen to kids. And did they, because you mentioned there were marital problems between Sarah and Fred. Um, did the family suspect Fred early on? Did they seem to to support him from afar or did they sort of distance themselves? They know, you know, early on, I mean, I'd say probably a week, maybe two weeks into it. I remember sitting down with all of the sisters. I mean, I was literally there with, you know, four or five of them in a house and talking to them and they were all still with Fred then, you know, I mean, this is before Eddie Lawrence and those guys kind of popped up into the discussion and they were, you know, they obviously were thinking, you know, Fred wanted to find the murderer. And then when Eddie and Curtis Rower popped up and there was the arrest and Dr. Ambrusco, the father-in-law, confronted Fred and said, who are these men? You know, how are they connected with you? And, you know, why aren't you helping? Why, you know, and Fred was like saying, you know, well, I'm trying to help and I can't tell you, you know, there's a lot, a lot that can't be said or, you know. By that time, the family really uh, thought he either was involved with it or he knew something more than he was letting on, which if that was the you know, that case, that is very bad, too. Well, and then you said we found out Sarah had hired a private investigator, too. Right. And that was early on. I mean, as I said, that was within a week so that, you know, they they were getting divorced. She had... uh, gone into a safe that he had in the basement. There was evidence that he was laundering money 
for um, some some drug dealers offshore accounts. And uh, and he had also previously he was teaching classes on how to hide money from the IRS. You know, um, <laughs> this is, you know, one of the stories along the way, you know, because we were writing something every day, basically. That that was one of them. So so, you know, she had gone into his safe, found this, went to either the private eye or to the divorce attorney. So the family uh, thought badly of Fred, you know, certainly before Christmas and after Christmas. Okay. And you mentioned to Michael, uh, we know you said Ricky moved to California Mm -hmm. and became a paramedic. Michael wrote for the AJC. Eventually he was a musician, but I did pretty tragically read recently. He's passed away. Right. He died about a year ago or maybe a little bit more than a year ago. It was right after COVID hit. He was writing for a, uh, he only wrote like one article for us, you know, the one that I got him to do. He went to Columbia to get a master's at Columbia University in in, uh, New York, one of the Ivy schools. So he was obviously very bright. He then worked for a a paper in, uh, a small paper in Florida and that didn't really work out, you know, whether he was just unenthused by it or what have you. And then he decided that he wanted to go to California. And so he drove out to California. Uh, this is right as COVID was going down. And as you remember, when COVID was beginning to go down, everything was shut down. It was just, you know, it seemed like Armageddon. He went out there. His aunt that he was that he knew out there, you know, she couldn't see him at first because um, she had been suffering from cancer. She was really immunocompromised, and so he was going to go see her. And then he decided to go somewhere else. They think that the long drive caused him to get a blood clot in his leg that ended up killing him. It was it was it was a strange. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was just a strange, sad ending uh, to him. And he died. And then Fred died a couple of months later. I, you know, I don't know if that had anything to do with that or not, but uh, Michael died before Fred did. Wow. And that was, that would have been 2020, like you said, close to mm-hmm. when COVID hit. Right. It's so sad. What did you, in, in the time that you spoke to family too, and her sons, how did they describe Sarah and, and what would they, I guess I usually like to kind of end on the victim, you know, and what, what was their legacy that they left behind? She was kind of the glue that kept the family together. You know, she was, you know, the, the golden apple, you know, she was a, uh, very outgoing, uh, you know, she was like uh, uh, a well-liked mother in, in the neighborhood where she was. Before that, she worked in the um, kind of like promotions field. So she was just very good at marketing blitzes and promotions and just outgoing, uh, fun, loving, you know, just a wonderful person from, you know, everyone I spoke with. And is there anything else you'd like to add? About the case? No, it's just, as I say, it's, you know, having done this for almost 40 years, that's, you know, one of a handful of cases that, uh, of stories that, you know, kind of stick with you. I mean, I, to this day, I'll run into the judge or the old prosecutor or, you know, some of the defense attorneys or, you know, uh, I got a call from one of the detectives um, in the case to tell me that, you know, Fred had died. So, there's a lot of associations that have you know, been forged through that. 
it was a terrible uh, crime and it was one that just kind of gripped Atlanta. I mean, for, for certainly a month, uh, it was a, just one that everyone knew, like every twist and turn that happened. And it was a, uh, a whodunit and, uh, and the source of the, the crime and, and the victims and all that, uh, including the children, uh, just really grabbed everyone here in Atlanta. Absolutely. Well, like I said, guys, so many twists and turns, bizarre press conferences, infidelity, drug rings, seedy, shady dealings, strange stories about the media and the cops on the case maybe being over-involved. I could not thank Bill Torpy enough for his perspective and insight on this case. And thank you so much for listening. My name is Nicole Bennett. This is my true crime podcast, Beyond Criminal Headlines, where every two weeks I feature a conversation between myself and journalists from across the industry who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history. Please follow, subscribe, and review. You'll be able to find new episodes every couple of weeks anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. I post when a new episode is up. I try to include content and pictures and photos specific to each crime that we've discussed. And I'm going to start, I promise, updating you guys on cases and investigations that are still ongoing. For instance, pretrial hearings for Ryan Duke in the Tara Grinstead case have officially started. His trial is scheduled for May. Ryan Duke is accused of killing Tara Grinstead roughly 16 years ago. And five years ago, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation says Ryan Duke confessed. I cannot wait to see what happens. I spoke with WSB-TV's Tony Thomas about this case. He's a reporter in Atlanta, Georgia. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. I think it's episode six. And like I said, I'll keep you guys updated. I hope you learned something from this week's episode on Fred Tokars featuring esteemed journalist Bill Torpy. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off.